I'm thankful for moments like this. It's just a reminder of who and what we have in Jesus Christ. Last night, my wife and I, on our date night, we decided to go to a revival meeting. So hopefully some of that has spilled out into this place today. But uh, it's just, it's always amazing to be filled up with the love and the presence of God. And I know each and every one of you here, you've got your own story. That's why we say from the platform each and every week, everyone matters to God because every story matters. You know, the scripture says, talks about Jesus. It said, if everything was written down that Jesus did and accomplished while he was here, there wouldn't be enough pages in all the world to fill up the stories. And the reason that is, is because everything he did was attached to a person. And every person has a story. We are living out the pages of the New Testament, the pages of the Bible. Your story matters to God because he has a plan for that story. He has good planned for you. He has a purpose planned for your life. You are not here by accident. You are here because he has planned a purpose for you. And I hope that today you get a sense of that purpose. For those of you that are new, my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. And again, I want to say welcome. And I hope that your time here is, is an encouragement to you. Uh, to kind of catch you up, over the last several weeks, we've been going through this study on spiritual warfare. The reality is that each and every one of us, every second of the day, is involved in a war. And it's not a war between flesh and blood, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, but it is a war against the spiritual forces that have set themselves up against God and his people. We have a real enemy, and our enemy is out to do nothing less than to steal, kill, and destroy. And as we've been going through this, I no doubt have, uh, in, in walking through this with you, I no doubt know that if you've been trying to implement some of these things we've been talking about and going to war against the enemy in your own life, you have sensed and have experienced much of that war. As your eyes begin to open up and see how the enemy is at work causing dysfunction and distraction and struggle and strife in your life, and you go to war against the enemy, he begins to retaliate and amplify his attack. But the beauty of the fact that we are the sons and daughters of God is we have the very word of God. And the word of God declares a promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. That Jesus is the builder of his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So even though the enemy rises up in attack, he increases his warfare against us. We have the promise that we win. We win. We overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We win. The enemy is defeated. But even though that's a reality for us, the truth is there are things at work in this world and in our lives that if they go completely unaware, the enemy will continue to have a foothold and leg or, or opportunity in our lives to attack us and to bring us harm. And so we've been going through over these several weeks things that we need to understand and know about this spiritual war. And a couple of weeks ago, we began talking about curses and that curses are a real thing. And we identified that the Bible reveals much about curses and how they operate in the world. 
And so we're going to kind of continue that today. And because curses are, if you want to define them simply, they're a, a negative force unleashed into motion that work against the blessing of God in your life. It works against the good that God wants for you. Now, all of us in this room, we want to be blessed, as well as we want to be a blessing to other people. So it's important that we recognize the curses that are in operation in the world, how they work, and how they operate in God's economy, and what we can, in fact, do about them. Because curses can govern outcomes of situations. They can influence behaviors, mindsets, attitudes, and create cycles of dysfunction in your life and all throughout family bloodlines. And this week, we're going to take a look at what other kinds of curses God's revealed to us in the Bible to help guard ourselves and our families from unnecessary struggle and hardship. So if you missed our talk on this subject online on our website, vlchurch.tv, you can go online and catch back up. I recommend you do that, or you can follow us on YouTube. Many of our messages are on there as well. But the first type of curses we're going to discuss today is, and it'd be good to take notes if you have your worship guide with you, we're going to go over several, I believe, eight different curses that the Bible talks about. So we're going to discuss these uh, today, and then you can take those notes for further research on your own. But the very first curse we're going to talk about today is, number one, God-ordained curses. Now, we wouldn't normally attribute curses to God. Because we normally attribute curses to witches and wizards and all the, the scary things that we kind of break out for decoration and Halloween. I don't know why we do that. You know, we, we've, we're freaked out about it 364 days of the year. But that one day, it's like the coolest thing in the world, right? So, but, but these are the things we attribute to the dark and the mysterious. But God himself has ordained curses to be unleashed in the world. And he's pronounced curses in the scripture. And what that means for us is that under the right circumstances, he has pre-approved our enemy to work out his destructive plans in the world. This is one of the ways that God pronounces judgment on sin and brings consequences to those who break his laws. Think of Adam and Eve. He said, do not eat of the fruit or else death will come. They ate of the fruit and they unleashed the curse of death. This is one of the mechanisms that God built into his economy. One of the most common curses unleashed in the world, and that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it really are curses from disobedience. When we violate God's will, his law, his ways, the result is in curses. And as I did back then a couple weeks ago, I encourage you to also this week, if you haven't already done so, read Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. And you can see the relationship between following God's law and receiving blessing and violating God's law and receiving cursing. There is a link between disobedience and curses. And God himself is the one who permits the curses to continue out even through a family bloodline as a consequence of sins of the parents. If you read in the book of Job, we can see how God is in control and in, in authority over curses that are unleashed. In Job, Satan wanted to mess Job up, but it wasn't until God released that hedge of protection on Job that Satan was allowed to touch his body. 
Now, Job is a unique situation because Scripture says Job had no sin. So this was something specific that God was wanting to reveal in the world and in his word. But what we see there is that God is in authority over curses that are in operation in the world. Curses can only be unleashed with God's say-so. Our enemy has no authority to curse us on his own. And the scripture reveals some reasons why God would allow these curses to go unleashed into your life. We can see in Psalm 119, verse 21, God says, or through the, the psalmist, he says, you rebuke the arrogant. Those who wander from your commands are cursed. This is the curses from disobedience. When we know God is saying, this is what I want for you, what I want for your life, how I want you to live, how I want you to love, and we choose opposite, we are cursing ourselves. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, this is what the Lord says, the prophet, according to the prophet Jeremiah, says, cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely only on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. The fastest way to a cursed life is to live in disobedience to the word and will of God, to trust in your own wisdom or the wisdom of man for your purpose, for your faith, how you believe, and for your moral guidance. Disobedience and unbelief is an open door to the enemy to work out his plans to steal, kill, and destroy. But a key thing for us to remember is that when God pronounces a curse, it is absolute. It will take effect. There is, there is no curse that has ever been unleashed by God that has not come true or will not come true at some point in the future. Every curse pronounced by God has come true. You can look at history and world history. If, you, if history wasn't your strongest subject, I know some people are like, man, I slept through my history classes, but they, they usually whiz in their math classes. I was the opposite. I slept through my math classes, and I whizzed through my history classes. I love history. And what you can see all throughout history are the nations that have set themselves up against the people of God, the nation of Israel. Those nations, by and large, are in no place of authority today. Many of them have come and gone. Because God is true to his word. He promised Abraham, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And many of the nations that have come against Israel have been destroyed. You can look at every nation that has set itself up against Israel in its history and see the evidence of that curse pronounced by God. You can look at the world at large today and see the curse of death that was unleashed by Adam and Eve's sin ravaging the world. Sin and death is everywhere. God's curses are absolute. They are concrete. But even though God-ordained curses are absolute, it's also important for us to understand that not all curses are absolute, which means not all curses are always guaranteed to go into effect. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2, Solomon writes this. He says, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim, which means we have more curses in this world and in operation than just God-ordained curses. And if God doesn't see a curse being deserved, he will not allow that curse to fall on its victim. In Numbers chapter 22, we see the story of uh, uh, the Moabites coming against 
the Israelites. And the king of Moab wanted to hire a prophet to curse the nation of Israel. And so Balaam, the prophet, went to God and said, God, I'm being hired to bring this curse. Can I do this? And God said, no, those are my people. I will bless those that bless them and curse those that curse them. You shall not curse my people, but you shall bless them. So even though someone wanted to curse Israel, God turned that curse around into a blessing. And as a child of God, if you are walking in repentance, you are walking in faith, you are walking in the authority of Christ, God is going to honor you and turn your curses around into blessings. Why? Because Jesus was hung on a cross, became the curse for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer under the weight of the curses. There are other curses at work in our world that also have great power and have potential effect to to make an impact in our lives that are not God-ordained. Not only do we have curses that go into effect when we're disobedient to God, but we also have curses that go into effect merely by what we say. A couple weeks ago, we had a discussion in the series on God's economy and how he built laws into the universal world, and we discussed how God has given human beings the gift of language, that our words are powerful. They have a creative force embedded in them, and they have the potential to impact our world, meaning by what we say. The second most common type of curses we see are spoken curses or word curses, Our words, what we say, are a very powerful thing. And the scripture reveals that our words, being a creative and powerful force, they will go into operation whether we know it or not. We could be pronouncing curses upon ourselves or other people just by the nature of how we speak. And there are several types of word curses we see in the scripture. The third type of curse we're going to look at today is a word curse. This is a curse against nature. And we can see this in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 2, Samuel, or sorry, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 21, uh, King Saul is fighting the Philistines, and Saul and his sons die on the mountain Gilboa. And David, even though David was at odds with Saul, he was mourning the fact that King Saul had died. And David, in his lament, pronounces a curse over the mountain where they fell. And in 2 Samuel verse tw- uh, chapter 1, verse 21, here's what David says. He says, On the mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. This is the word curse against nature that David pronounced at the death of of Saul. And interesting enough, I read an article uh, in the Times of Israel, and it was entitled this. It says, in the Gilboa Mountains, the wildflowers defy King David's curse. And in that article, they show this image of Mount Gilboa. And what's interesting, in, in the article, they cite that if you look at uh, this image, this is from Mount Saul, It's along a route that rises 302 meters above sea level and juts out from the rest of the ridge. On the mountain located with the pine forest, there's a short biblical trail lined with Hebrew plaques describing biblical events that took place on or near Gilboa. At a break in the forest, a window, which what you see here, opens onto a view of Gilboa, dropping sharply down to the valley. Part of the mountain is completely bare. 
The only foliage being forests that you see were planted by the Jerusalem National Fund. And then they asked this question, could this be a result of David's curse? In other words, the only vegetation you really see are vegetation that was planted by some other source. It's not natural to the area. And then later on in the article, they talk about these wildflowers that show up there, that they're questioning whether or not they defy the curse of David, and yet they discovered that those also were a transplant somewhere else. And since those flowers can survive in desert climate, they've somehow flourished after being planted. But ever since 3,000 years ago, this mountain has remained completely the same. Be hard-pressed to determine whether or not any rain has fallen on this mountain, but because of the desert wasteland climate of the mountain, it's a pretty good evidence that this is, in fact, a result of the curse of David because no harvesting crops have grown there for 3,000 years. Word curses are powerful. There's another example in the New Testament by Jesus. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes to a fig tree to find some figs to eat. There were no figs present. He cursed the tree, and the next day, the tree had withered up and had died. Word curses are biblical, and they are very real. These are two similar Old and New Testament evidences for curses against nature, what we see in the Scripture. The fourth type of curse we're going to talk about today it's also a spoken curse. These are curses that are a result of relationships. These are relational curses. And these aren't to be confused with generational curses. Generational curses are curses that are enacted by the disobedience of someone in a family, and those uh, consequences are passed through the bloodline. But these are a little different. These are curses that have to do with authority structures in a relationship. By the nature of God's universal economy, he ordained relationships within human society to be such where one person, by nature of the relationship, may have rule or authority over another. For an instance, a husband has authority over his wife. Parents have authority over their children. Teachers have authority over their pupils. Pastors have authority over their churches. Officials in a city have authority over their, their citizens, states, or nations. Because of this relational authority, it seems that within the economy of God that we can see through Scripture, that because of the nature of this relationship, such persons have the ability to either bless or curse those under their authority. In Genesis chapter 31, Jacob, as he was leaving with his wives and his family after staying with his uh, father-in-law Laban for a certain period of time, on their way out as they were leaving, Laban catches up with them and begins to accuse Jacob of stealing his household idols. And Jacob, not knowing who had stolen them because he thought they were all completely innocent, he pronounces a word curse in Genesis chapter 31, verse 32. Here's what he says. He says, but as for your gods... See if you can find them, and then let the person who has taken them die. He pronounces this curse. And of course, Laban couldn't find them because the one who had them was hiding them. And Jacob didn't know that the person that had the idols was his beloved wife, Rachel, the one he loved most dearly. And Jacob, he was pronouncing this curse as a way to kind of posture up to his father-in-law. He, he thought everyone was innocent. So he was just trying to make his father-in-law feel stupid for accusing him wrongfully of this act. Jacob said it in all innocence, believing everyone was innocent. But God knew who the guilty party was. And because of that disobedience, God let the curse stand. 
Jacob did not know that by enacting this curse, he was in fact cursing his beloved wife. And soon after this event, in Genesis chapter 35, Rachel goes into labor with her youngest son, Benjamin, and dies while giving childbirth. She has two children, Joseph and Benjamin. This is the cause and effect that happens in the world when our words are activated into curses against those in our care. It was her husband's curse that caused her death. Think about the relationship or relational authority of parents. For example, you may have a father that has two sons. And the oldest son, he's talented, he's smart, he's, he's uh, equipped, he he's, has ability, and he's very proud of his oldest son, promotes his oldest son, shows his oldest son off, goes to all the sporting events. But then the younger son, kind of like that movie Twins, where you have Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was an old movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, I guess they got some super juice, and it all went to Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is why he was big and tough, and Danny DeVito was short and stubby. You know, he, he got the junk that was left over, which was the running joke in the film. You know, this might have been the case. The older son had everything that it took to be a superstar, and the youngest son, not so much. And so the father prefers his oldest son, but is against the younger son, maybe because he sees inadequacies in himself in his younger son. So he begins to demean his younger son by saying things like, you'll never succeed. You can't do anything. You'll, you'll never be anything good in life. There's no hope for you. Those statements are a curse over his children. When we say things as parents to our kids like, you're just going to screw it up. You'll never get it right. God, let me do it. Get out of the way. You can't do it. You don't know what you're doing. You'll never be good enough. You're always naughty. We are cursing the future of our children, dooming them to live under stigmas which will forever affect their self-esteem, their confidence, their ability to set goals, and their motivation to chase after those goals. It will forever affect the course of their lives. See, the scripture says life and death are in the power of the tongue. And many times we speak without even knowing the consequences. And when we speak like that over those in our authority, especially as parents over children, you're not speaking life over your kids, but you're speaking death over your kids in a way that stifles their faith, stifles their purpose, kills their motivation, and even opportunities for success later. And I would believe or beg to understand today that there are many people in our presence today, in this church, you have many natural gifts and talents for which God has gifted you, and you cannot succeed. Not because you're not able, but because you are struggling under a parental curse. You have no confidence or belief that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you because you're still struggling under that parental stigma that says you are not good enough and you'll never be capable. See, as parents, we need to speak life and blessing over our kids to set them up for success and to work against the enemy in our families. But not only do those in authority need to watch how they speak over those who are under their authority, we also need to remember that when a person rebels against a God-given ordained authority over them, they also place a curse upon themselves. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this to the church of Rome. 
It says, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. It's a very dangerous game that we play when you're playing yourself or putting yourself at odds and fighting against someone God has put in authority over you. Because when we rebel against God-ordained authorities in our life, we are putting ourselves against God. We are rebelling against God himself. And within the relational authority, the people God has put over us have an ability to either bless you or curse you. And many of us, because of our rebellious nature and our attitudes, we bring these curses upon us. Ourself. First Samuel 15, 23, the word of God says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft equals partnering with evil spirits or demonic forces for some sort of desired outcome in your life or in the world. Rebellion isn't a good thing. It's not a good character trait. It's not something to be uh, uh, promoted or feel good about. Rebellion isn't honorable, nor is it healthy for your spiritual condition or the condition of your family. And not only should we guard our words that we speak to those who we are in authority over, we should also respect those who are in authority over us to keep from coming into contact with the fifth type of curses we're going to discuss today. Number five is self-imposed curses. These are curses that we bring upon ourselves. Again, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright. And in order for that uh, transaction to stand, he also needed the blessing from his father. This was a tradition in, in the days of Israel in the ancient times, which seemed to have a spiritual significance in the outcome of uh, the future of those families. And so Jacob conspired with his mother on how to trick Isaac, his father, into giving him this blessing. And Jacob was fearful that Isaac was going to find out. And instead of blessing him and giving him the parental blessing, he would, in fact, curse him. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mother, declared this to her son in Genesis 27, verse 13. He says, his mother replied, then let this curse fall on me, my son. Just do what I tell you and go get the goats for me. He does what his mother asked. He receives the blessing. But what we see significantly in here is that this was an act of deception. This was a sin before God. And God allowed that curse to fall. Just before Jacob flees, we begin to see this curse at work in her life as his mother begins to worry and become full of anxiety about her legacy and how her family is going to continue on. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 26, just before Jacob flees out of fear for his brother Esau, it says, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like one of these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? What's interesting about this conversation with Rebecca and her husband is that she says, I loathe my life. That basically if my son marries one of these local girls, I would just assume die. These words reveal that she wasn't valuing her own life. 
that she didn't have a biblical view of her circumstances, that these are not the thoughts and feelings of a blessed and a favored individual. These are the thoughts and feelings of a person that is under a curse, that's oppressed by the enemy, that has thoughts of of negativity and and distraction and and an unbiblical way of thinking in their life. The curse was already beginning to set in with the way she was valuing herself. And after that final statement, we don't hear from her ever again in the scripture. We don't hear from her at all. But we do know that she died before Isaac, who was already ill. Because when Jacob goes back some 20 years later to bury his father, she is already dead and buries his father next to his mother. This is a self-imposed curse. And we can inadvertently bring curses upon ourselves if we don't watch how we speak about and value the gift of life that God has given us. In the the teaching of the economy of God in this series, we talked about inner and outer vows, how we make these self-determinations or these self-made promises, and we bind ourselves spiritually to the outcomes of the things that we speak, the things that we promise ourselves or that we vow. And that when we live in agreement with the lies of the enemy, we too bind ourselves to those lies. And when the enemy speaks lies in regards to our value, our worth, our potential, our purpose, this can be devastating, especially through those agreements because we bind ourselves to the outcomes of the demonic oppression. We need to guard our speech and watch for self-imposed curses. Number six, we have occultic curses. Curses can come from participation in occultic activities, such as reading materials of occultic in nature, attending seances, Ouija boards, etc., or receiving possessions from uh, somebody that has to do with some type of occultic activity, going to visit someone who is possessed by an evil spirit to seek wisdom or counsel. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, God declares to the nation of Israel, he says, do not defile yourselves by turning to mediums or those who consult the spirits of the dead, for I am the Lord your God. We have this very prevalent thing in our culture today where people will check the tarot cards. They'll look at their... Uh, their their different signs and try to find out what their horoscope is. All these things that are occultic in nature meant to be used by the enemy to sway the hearts of the people of God. There are people in this world today that are supernaturally empowered by Satan. They've cultivated demonic powers in such a way that they can release that power into the lives of others. And we have various names for these people. We call them witches, witch doctors, wizards, sorcerers, mediums, clairvoyants, fortune tellers, and even false prophets. This is a very real thing in our world that we don't often consider or think about. Uh, Last year, I watched this documentary film called The Father of Lights. And the premise of the film was that the filmmaker uh, was going to team up with an evangelist, and they were just going to go wherever the Holy Spirit led them to go. They had no plan, they had a budget, they had a camera, and that was about it. So they, they prayed and prayed and asked God where to, should they go, and God led them to some place in Africa, into an indigenous area, to where there was a local missionary. And this missionary told them about a witch doctor in the area who was very powerful. He was known to be able to conjure up evil spirits, uh, place those spirits into elephants and send those elephants to murder people that he was cursing. It was a very real thing. The people in the tribe, the local tribe, were terrified of the guy. 
but yet they would bring him offerings. They would bring him gifts. They would go to him to seek for wisdom, for counsel, for healing, and even to curse those that they hated. And so as the evangelist and the missionary were, were discussing, the missionary says, you know what? We should go see this guy. And of course, the evangelist was like, okay, yeah, let's do that. And I'm like, oh, you guys are crazy, you know? But uh, this is what they did. So they went out. And it was just an amazing thing because when they got to the man's hut, they were standing outside calling out for the man but the witch doctor, this feared guy who everyone revered, would not leave his home. He would not come out. And I'm reminded of the story in the scripture where Jesus would go to a location and was met by a man possessed of many spirits, and they screeched in fear because they were afraid of what the Lord was going to do with them. And the evangelist and the missionary, obviously filled with the Holy Spirit, were calling out to this man, and yet he would not leave his home. He was terrified. And so his wife eventually came out after they had some time of prayer. They were praying for his deliverance, that the spirits would go, that the man would be free to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they have an opportunity to minister to him. But the man was terrified, petrified. He couldn't leave his home. The wife eventually came out, and the first thing she said was, what did you do to my husband? I've never seen him like this. I've never seen him so afraid. He would not come out. It was a testimony to the power of God. Uh, after they returned from that encounter, they found out a few days later that the man and his wife had fled the area. They left, just up and left. This is a reality. We don't often come into contact with in our nation, but this is happening all over the world. The enemy is alive. He is working his will and his ways in our world, and we as the church of Jesus Christ have been given authority and position in Christ to rise up to defeat these spirits that are at work against us, not go along and play around with them and partner with them. There are curses that can be pronounced on your life through participating in occultic activity. Number seven, curses from prayers of the flesh, flippant speech, or gossip. So when we get upset as people, and I don't know about you, but I'm sure you've gotten upset a time or two just as I have. Maybe even today, you know, maybe we've gotten upset a time or two. But when we get upset, we don't normally handle our problems biblically because we are sinful human beings. And we have a tendency to talk to everyone around us other than the person we actually have the problem with. And in so doing that, by, by not following Christ's outline for conflict resolution, by not seeking out the person we have a problem with and reconciling that relationship and going to all these other sources to air our grievances, we leave the realm of the Holy Spirit, right? We're to walk in the Spirit, and by walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. When we choose the flesh over the Spirit, we leave the realm of the Holy Spirit and enter into the realm of flesh, and as we enter into the realm of flesh, we begin to pray from those negative emotions and those fleshly attitudes. And we begin to, to speak about the other person. We begin to unleash curses into the life of other people. And this happens in the church out of this idea that we're spiritual, but yet we are walking in the flesh and not in the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 11, here's what James says. This is the ESV version. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In James 4.11 in the New Living Translation, it kind of rewords it like this. I like how both of these kind of give us clarity of what 
he's writing here. In uh, the New Living Translation, it says this. Don't speak evil against each other, brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. There is a difference between holding someone accountable and working towards reconciliation than just getting upset and being critical. And we all struggle with this, every one of us. And when we're critical and we speak against one another, we're setting ourselves up not only as a judge over each other, as if I have a right or some type of privilege to judge your worth or, or the value of your actions, but we're even setting ourselves up to judge over the one who created the law because he created everyone in his own image. We're setting ourselves up as if we know better than God or worthy to judge others as if we could take God's place. Ask yourself this question or think about this. How many of you have a person in your life that the moment drama happens, you have them on speed dial, you whip out that phone, you hit the button, and for the next hour or so, you are just griping and complaining until their ear falls off. Right? This is a natural thing. This is something that happens all of the time. It's very common. But what happens when we do that, when we don't air our grievances in biblically the way God has instructed us to do so, what happens is that the power of our words, those criticisms, those complaints, they go into effect against the person we're angry at, and that negativity gets not only seeded deeply into your own heart, but then gets planted into the heart of the one you are speaking to. Plant seeds of discord. And instead of obeying the Lord's command in Matthew 18 and only talking to the person that you are struggling with and working that out, we go around spreading all this information to people that don't need to have the information. We end up cursing not only the one we're speaking against, but also ourselves. And then we have people that the Bible calls busybodies, or we call busybodies, who thrive on drama. And whenever they get wind of the information, and because they thrive on drama, they can't keep it silent. And because they just feel this innate need to help, they get themselves involved in an issue they shouldn't have been involved in in the first place. And they only make the problem worse, exacerbating the issue. This is the effect of the curse of gossip. It's a curse that brings dysfunction, difficulty, destruction of relationships within a relationship within a church, within a family. And church people are notorious when they have problems about speaking about others rather than speaking to the one they have a problem with, especially when it comes to church leadership. It's a huge killer of unity and brings a curse into the body of Christ. Number eight, the last curse. It's curses from unbiblical covenants. Unbiblical covenants. Curses from unbiblical covenants are by which people covenant or commit themselves to or with persons who are themselves committed to false gods. A covenant is a partnership that is sealed with an oath or a promise. If you make a covenant with people who are in a false religion or who worship false gods, not only do you make a covenant with these people, but you also are making a covenant with their gods. And we don't just speak about idols as if we are in uh, India looking at all the little statues. These are uh, multiple facets, people that give themselves over to false idols in many ways. 
And the Bible reveals to us that there's a demonic power behind every idol or false religion you see. And so in essence, if you are partnering with someone who is given to a false idol, you are in essence forging an alliance with an evil and bringing upon yourself a curse. And as a Christian, we are to have no partnership with evil. Paul says to the church of Rome, let not even any part of your body be submitted to be uh, uh, an instrument of Satan. This is why deliverance and warfare is so important. We need to remove wicked things from our lives. We need to give ourselves wholly to the Lord. He must increase and we must decrease. But when we neglect to go to war against sin and the devil and to continue to live according to our flesh, we in essence are partnering and covenanting with evil. A spiritual transaction takes place and it grants demonic spirits permission to work in our lives. This verse leapt off the page to me the last couple of weeks. Amos chapter three, verse three. The prophet Amos says this. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? And the answer is no. You cannot walk together in harmony and in unity without being in agreement with one another. And when we allow evil spirits to continually have access to our lives, we in essence are placing ourselves in agreement with their desired plans and goals. We create a partnership with the devil and help them in their plans to steal, kill, and destroy. So not only should we avoid covenants with or partnering with people from other religions and business and or daily life, but Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18, he says, don't team up with people who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers. Separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord. Almighty. Did you know the God of heaven is living among you and living in you? Do you know you are a son and a daughter of the Lord Almighty if you place your faith and trust in Christ? Do you know that you have a special relationship with God that the devil, the evil one, wants to corrupt? See, we live in a world, we live in the world. But as followers of Christ, we need to rise up and come out from among the world and start, stop partnering in these unbiblical covenants. And there are many covenants that we make and other covenants rather than in business or others. There are covenants that we make aside from demons and, and our sin nature and the relationship that they have. The most obvious covenant in our day, especially in our day, that we overlook is the covenant of marriage. Many believers, out of fear, loneliness, selfishness, and pride, enter into unbiblical marriage covenants and therefore heap upon themselves curses from disobedience. But not only entering into marriage covenants do they heap these curses upon themselves, but also in exiting marriage covenants. It is an epidemic in our day that divorce is rampant within the church. 
In Matthew chapter 5, 31 through 32, Jesus is actually teaching about this very same thing. And he said this. He says, you've heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Here Jesus is using the example of a, a man divorcing his wife, but this applies to both of the sexes. People who divorce for reasons other than unfaithfulness in marriage open themselves up to a curse if they remarry. Because to do so, according to our Lord and Savior, is to enter into a state of adultery. Jesus said God's original intention for marriage is that there would be one man and one woman to remain in an irrevocable, eternal covenant. Divorce is not a part of the equation. And unless someone breaks the covenant through unfaithfulness, then and only then will they have just cause to separate. And how many people do you know who divorced for less? Maybe because they just couldn't get along. There's pride that ruled the marriage and not Jesus. If both spouses are believers in Christ, both of you call in the name of Christ, you're both sons and daughters of the Most High God. Paul revealed a command from God to us in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. He says, but those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. If she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And a husband must not leave his wife. The marriage between a man and a woman is an eternal picture of the gospel. God's intention is for you to remain married, to humble yourselves and work through your problems. You're to submit yourself to the Lord before you submit yourself to one another. And by submitting to the Lord, you submit to stay in that covenant of marriage. Anything else is of the evil one and brings a curse. And God takes the marriage covenant seriously, but not just any kind of marriage, the marriage the way he intended it. Any other equation of marriage is outside of his will and brings upon it severe consequences, especially when it comes to being unequally yoked in marriage. In the book of Amos, we see how God was going to destroy the entire nation of Israel because the men of Israel had begun to marry people of foreign lands, bringing in uh, idolatry by marrying these pagan women. They had, had children with them. They were infiltrated. The, the whole nation and corrupting the nation because of these ungodly marriages which were against his law. They were unequally yoked. And it wasn't until they divorced their foreign wives and sent them and their children back to their homeland that God stayed his wrath against the people of Israel. Though they were married in man's sight, God did not recognize their marriages because he saw it as wickedness because it was out of rebellion. And in our day, there are many perversions of this covenant that seem to be socially acceptable, such as believers acting married by engaging in sexual conduct outside of marriage, believers marrying unbelievers, believers divorcing and remarrying due to unreconcilable differences, not unfaithfulness, believers engaged in homosexual marriage or anything else other than God's original design. We have all these different examples of marriage. And even though some of these may be socially acceptable in our day, it was then and continues to be still today that God only recognizes marriages and allows those uh, that are, are in marriage that is outside of his will in to reap the consequences of those sins. All of these unbiblical unions, partnerships, and covenants come with a curse due to disobedience. 
And as such, it invites the demonic into your life and into your home, opens you up to strongholds that will breed dysfunction and struggle in your life. And you may be here today, and you might be like, I'm in one of those situations. And now what? And the truth is, is there is hope. There is grace. And there's a pathway forward, but it first requires you to come into agreement with the word and will of God. Can two people walk in the same direction and not be in agreement? No. So for you to walk with the Lord, you have to come into agreement with the Lord. And the reality for us, church, is that once we become aware of the information, once we become aware of these curses and how they're in operation and the things we're doing to unleash them in our lives, we become responsible for the information. And now that we know and understand the source of some of these curses in our lives, we have to decide what are we going to do with it. What you do going forward will affect God's power and presence in your life. It will affect your relationships with your family, your friends, your coworkers, etc. It will affect your access to the rich and satisfying life Jesus wants for you to enjoy in this life. He has come that you might have a rich and satisfying life. But that only comes when we lay down our lives and take up our cross and follow him. A pastor once said, information plus application equals transformation. And we can't get to the rich and satisfying life, to that area of blessing, until we've been transformed by the faith we say we believe. So I'm going to give you a couple of steps in applying this information today. Number one, if you want to begin to undo the curses in your life, number one is you need to identify the curses in your life. What is it you are continually pressing against? What is it? What is pressing up against you? What are you constantly fighting against? Is it marriage problems? Is it security? Is it addictions? What is it that's in your life? Number two, you need to discover the source of the curse. Is it something you did? Or is it something that a family member from a generation past unleashed into your life? If it's been passed down through the generations, you need to recognize that you don't have to be mastered by the sins of others. There is a way to be delivered. This is not something that is hopeless or ends without any hope. God has provided us a way to be delivered through Christ Jesus. Number three, once you've identified and you've discovered, you need to ask God to forgive you. Forgive your ancestors. Repent of your sins and the sins of others in your family that have brought these curses into your life. We have to remember the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. And the scripture says when we ask God to forgive us, we are not only forgiven, but we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. And our devil has a way to continually to bring these things back up in our lives and be like, remember what you did? Remember what happened? And to not allow us to feel freedom through that forgiveness. But the word says, who the Son of Man has set free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so when you confess your sins to God and you repent and turn away, you walk away completely free, completely changed, never again to be bound down by the works of the devil. We need to remember the promises of God. But repentance is not just feeling bad and saying, I'm sorry. It's but taking observable, life-changing steps in another direction. 
by saying, God, you must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing, and I'm going to go another way. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, the word of God says, bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. The fruits here are the evidence of a changed heart. It's restitution. It's proactive steps toward changing your life, toward righting what was wrong, discontinuing the disobedience. It's like returning what you've stolen, or, or it's like breaking off on biblical partnerships. It's seeking out the one who you wronged or who has wronged you to reconcile that relationship, taking things proactively on the outside to display the humility of your heart that's submitted to God. To show God, I am going to follow through with what I say I believe. I'm going to stop this disobedience, which is opening the door to these curses in my life, and I'm going to close them through trusting in you and obeying your word. Number four, trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is so vital because we feel like we have to own that it's what we do that, that brings about the blessings of God. No, Christ has accomplished everything on the cross. His blood was shed to break the curse of the devil. His work on the cross enables us to have salvation and to have a reconciled relationship with God. Our sins, our shame, our punishment, every curse was placed upon Jesus when he hung on that cross. And through his finished work on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, we now have the power to break free from the curses in our lives. We can be delivered from the hand of the enemy by trusting in the death of Christ. And then number five, as you pray, you seek God's face, you appropriate the blood of Christ. When you pray, you declare with your mouth through the blood of Christ, I am delivered. I've been set free from the enemy. The oppression of the enemy is over in all authority because of the blood of Christ and the power of Jesus' name. In your prayers, when you appropriate the blood of Christ, you declare that the curses are broken and that it will have no effect in your life. You break the curse of the enemy and you cancel their ability to retaliate and bring attack back in your life. You appropriate the blood because it's through the blood you have been set free. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said to the church of Colossians, through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It is the blood of Christ that brings peace. And when you pray, you plead the blood. You appropriate the blood of Christ over your life, over your situation. Peace is yours through the blood of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ that the power of the curses of the devil are broken. When we identify the curse, when we confess and repent, we trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and appropriate his blood in our lives, we unleash the power of God to be set free. And that is God's will for us, church, is that we would be free, free to walk in the blessings of God. 
We must remember that we're not promised to be exempt from consequences. Sin has an effect. This is not a formula to guarantee a problem-free life or a worry-free life, but by following these steps and placing your hope in Christ, you're putting yourself and your families in the center of God's blessing. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be in the place that is in the center of God's blessing where he can turn my curses into blessing than be in a place where he finds it fitting to let the curses fall in my life. I close with this verse today, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. This is my prayer for my own life and for the church. It says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear bow our heads in this place as we go into a time of response. I know this subject matter can be heavy, but the good news is that Christ finished the work on the cross. He paved the way. Scripture says to trust in him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And today, if you are struggling under the weight of a curse in your life or, or these things that you keep pressing against that you have yet to be able to receive freedom, I challenge you today to plead the blood of Christ in your life. I challenge you today to call out on the name of Jesus Christ and seek his face and watch him turn those curses into blessing. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. You've never begun a relationship with him. If you were to die today, you would not know where you would end up. The Word of God says those that are far from God, who have no relationship with God, who have not trusted in Jesus, they are dwelling under the curse of sin and death. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross, is that the curse of sin and death was broken through the death of Jesus Christ. And new life was made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can have new life today by placing your faith and trust in him. And right now you can call out to God and you can say, Father, forgive me. I am a sinner. And that sin has separated me from you. But I'm trusting in Jesus in his death and resurrection, in the blood that he shed for me, and I proclaim him as my Lord and Savior. Take me, Lord, today. I am yours in Jesus' name. By calling out to the Lord, the word of God declares you will be taken from death and be immersed in his eternal life, that you will be taken from cursing and be drowned in his eternal blessing, that you will become a son and a daughter where once you were an enemy of God. And I challenge you today to call out to God and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to let him begin a work in your life. And right now, we're going to enter a time of response. We're going to open this front altar for you to come and respond to the Lord, to pray and to seek his face, to plead the blood of Christ over your sin and over your families, to break the curses and break the chains and to break the things that he has uh, enabled you to break through who you are in him. Father, I pray for the church today. I pray in all authority. I pray in the anointing you've given us as sons and daughters of the most high God. I plead the blood of Christ over Vertical Life Church and everyone here under the sound of my voice. God, I pray that today will be a day of deliverance and victory. 
that those suffering from emotional curses would see and experience deliverance today. Those suffering from physical curses would receive deliverance today. Those suffering from relational curses would receive deliverance today. Those under the weight of generational curses and curses of religion and religiosity that keeps their hearts stone cold and prevents the fire of the Holy Spirit to erupt out in their life to be delivered right now in the name of Jesus. God, for those who are lost and who are on their way to hell because of lacking a relationship with you would call out to you and they would be delivered and become saved and become children and daughters and sons of the Most High God today in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be unleashed, downpour and fall out now in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Let's all stand together. And if you would like to come forward and pray, I'll be down here to pray with you. And let's respond to the Lord as he has laid on your heart today.